I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, a plague of unsolved murders in Oakland. Last year, 120 people were killed in the city, a homicide rate that surged during the pandemic. Making matters worse, most of these killings remain unsolved, with Oakland's homicide clearance rate lagging behind other big cities around the state and around the country. For families and communities looking for answers, this uncertainty can be devastating. In July, Tina Harris received a call that upended her world. Her son, Jamal Watkins, had been shot and killed. I still clearly don't understand why it happened. The subsequent investigation into Jamal's murder has left his family with more questions than answers. I still feel the same that I felt that day, just praying that before I leave from here, we get justice for my child and find out exactly the details of what happened. We'll hear more from Jamal's mother, Tina Harris, throughout the episode. What's behind Oakland's low homicide clearance rates? My colleagues Joshua Sharp and Susie Nielsen have been digging into the numbers. They found that Oakland has staffing issues that may contribute to the problem, and they also found stark disparities in homicide investigations across neighborhoods. Perhaps most important, they've been looking at the consequences of killers not being brought to justice. My guests today are Chronicle reporters Joshua Sharp and Susie Nielsen. Welcome both of you to Fifth and Mission. Thanks for having us. Josh, let's start with Jamal Watkins. What can you tell me about him? Jamal Watkins was a 33-year-old father of four boys. He grew up in East Oakland. He lived in Stockton, worked as a security guard at a hospital. And um, on the evening of July 22nd, Watkins was um, visiting Oakland. Uh, He had two plans for that night. He was going to visit a cousin, and then he was going to go out. His first stop was to see his cousin. Now, as he's turning into the parking lot of his cousin's apartment building, which is off of 82nd Avenue, suddenly a bullet bursts through the window and strikes him in the head. And this causes Watkins to obviously lose control of his vehicle, which rolls forward and crashes into the apartment building. And the death is ruled a homicide, obviously, as a result of the bullet, not the crash. And do we know why he was killed? We don't know. I've spoken with his his family a number of times. They are racking their brains trying to figure out who would want to kill him and why. They just can't figure it out. They say he has no enemies and just wasn't the type of person who they would think would have someone so angry at him that they would want to shoot him. Here's Tina Harris again. Jamal was a well-respected person who had a great sense of humor. He would be someone that you would probably call to uplift your spirits. He loved spending time with his kids. He was a great father. He was a great son. And so today that case is unsolved but still active, right? Exactly. It's still unsolved. The police are still looking into it. I asked them to give me what update they could, and they would not uh, release any information other than what they initially released. I want to talk later about what the case not being solved has meant to Jamal Watkins' family, but first let's get into your story on clearance rates. You write that of the uh, 120 people killed in Oakland last year, just 32 of those cases have been solved. Susie, can you help us understand what this means? Uh, What's the definition of solving crimes? When it comes to a homicide clearance rate, 
What police do to calculate that is they look at the total number of homicides that they have, quote, cleared. And clearing a case basically usually means that they've made an arrest in that case, but it could also mean that they've issued a finding of self-defense or that the suspect in question died. So they take the number of homicide cases that they've cleared that year, and then they divide it by the total number of homicides that happened that year. This is kind of an imperfect statistic because obviously you can clear a case that happened the previous year, so it's not apples to apples, but it's how the FBI has been calculating clearance rates for a long time. And so it's kind of the year-to-year statistic that we use to look at changes to clearance rates. So when we look at Oakland's clearance rate now for homicides, we see that the city has a clearance rate of 36% in 2022. And that number is far lower than Oakland's been in the past. And it's also significantly lower than most other major cities in California, maybe all major cities in California, and significantly lower also than other cities across the U.S. with high murders. So we look at Baltimore. Their clearance rate in 2021 was 42%, and Oakland's was 36%. We look at New Orleans, and it was 42%. Those cities are both also known for having really low clearance rates, but they're still not as low as Oakland's. Okay, Susie, I want to make sure I understand. Let's say a city has five killings in 2022. Theoretically, they could have solved six or seven because they can solve cases from previous years, and you could actually have a clearance rate that's above 100%. (laughs) Yep, and it happens sometimes. Um, In small departments, you know, they'll sometimes solve a bunch of cases in a year, and they'll have few homicides, and they'll have a clearance rate of 120%. But say you want to just look at the number of cases that Oakland Police Department solved. There were 120 homicides last year in Oakland, and police solved 32 of those. And so that means that it solved just 27% of the homicides that happened last year. And Josh, why has Oakland struggled so much to solve these cases? Well, there are many factors that probably go into this. There are two things that keep coming up, though. One thing is uh, distrust in the community. Now, if you ask the police, they phrase it as difficulty in getting witnesses to cooperate. But if you talk to people in the community, they say that this is the Oakland Police Department and we don't trust in their ability to, to one, solve the case. We don't trust in their ability to operate fairly. This is a police department that has been under federal oversight for 20 years and has, has gone through myriad scandals. Public trust is definitely one thing that everyone seems to agree is causing an issue here. Because in any investigation, you need your witnesses to trust that the police are are capable and will fulfill the duties of their job, which obviously bringing answers in homicide cases is a core duty that our society expects police to handle. The other problem that, that keeps coming up in Oakland is short staffing within the homicide unit itself. There are 15 homicide investigators in Oakland. Now, this means that with the elevated number of homicides that we've had in the past three years, those investigators end up working eight to 10 cases a year. Now, that means they're the lead on eight to 10 cases per year. This is nearly double what the Department of Justice recommends what experts recommend, what everybody recommends. The standard is three to six cases per year for a homicide investigator is the 
kind of agreed upon reasonable amount of cases. Now, if you want an example of what can happen if you have detectives who are less burdened, just go over to San Francisco. That hasn't always been the case, but these days, San Francisco has far fewer homicides than Oakland does. In 2022, for example, there were 55 homicides, and the police department ended up with a clearance rate of 75%. Now, that's compared to 36% over in Oakland. Now, Oakland has 15 homicide investigators. How many does San Francisco have? They have 13, and they have four part-timers. Oakland has a new mayor, Sheng Tao, who has just fired the police chief, Laron Armstrong. What does the mayor have to say about this problem? We asked for an interview with Mayor Tao and spoke a bit with a spokesperson and weren't able to, in the end, schedule an interview. However, there was a suggestion that the mayor is uh, wanting to add more resources to the homicide unit. And the mayor's spokesperson also brought up that she has only recently become the mayor. And obviously, this is a problem that's been going back for many, many years not even just 2022. This goes back off and on, mostly on, to the 1990s. All right, I want to take a quick break, but I want to ask you when we come back about differences you found in homicide clearance rates in Oakland by neighborhood and by race. More with Susie Nielsen and Joshua Sharp right after this. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa, joined by Joshua Sharp and Susie Nielsen, Chronicle reporters who've been studying Oakland's difficulty in solving homicides. Susie, you broke down not only homicides, but clearance rates by neighborhood and by race in Oakland. What kinds of disparities did you find? I'll just start out by saying it can be pretty tough to get data from the Oakland Police Department or any records at all. And so we actually, when we requested data on homicide victims from the department, we were not expecting them to give us the level of data that they did. But they actually gave us data on every victim in 2022, along with their race, gender, age, and location. And we were able to use that data to look at whether homicides were more likely to be cleared in different parts of the city. So we basically made a map of all the victims and we divided it into Oakland's police areas. So that's five different areas across the city. These are the traditional police areas. And we found that in the most rapidly gentrifying part of the city, so I would call that West Oakland and downtown, it tends to be where a lot more like white and wealthier people are kind of flocking to these days. The clearance rate was higher, like significantly higher than it was in police areas three, four, and five, which basically they make up East Oakland. So the Two areas that had the lowest clearance rates, at least the ones with significant homicides, were police areas four and five, which represent collectively what we would call deep East Oakland. So these are areas that tend to be disproportionately black. And talking about what Josh was saying earlier, you know, these are areas often that have a lot of mistrust around the Oakland police because of previous issues with racism and abuse. And our findings are in keeping with previous research, including this UC Berkeley study that came out in 2020 that uncovered what they called stark racial disparities in arrest rates for homicides. And 
Many complaints about the way that Oakland police respond to homicides. Victims' families, particularly Black ones, reported, quote, disrespectful and discriminatory treatment. And they said that police didn't take their safety concerns seriously. And so the study found that this contributes to how people feel about cooperating with police, basically. And Susie, haven't we seen these kinds of differences around the country? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you see study after study showing that, you know, in places like New Orleans and Baltimore that have both disproportionately Black populations and high rates of homicides and histories of police departments with abuse, you do see these patterns replicated across the country. Oakland is just one of many cities like this. Josh, I want to ask you a, a pretty basic question. Why is it so important to solve homicides? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that as well. I think the main one is that most of us, uh, probably all of us agree that you're not supposed to kill people. And if you do that, then there have to be consequences for the person or people responsible. That's the base thing that is baked into, uh, I would say, not just our country and state, but our conscience. Another thing is the fear that someone who committed one killing could go on to commit further violence, and the idea is that you would want to stop that person before they go on to do that and limit the risk. Beyond that, this is for the victims' families. The knowledge that a loved one was taken on a homicide causes extreme trauma. And it is only made worse when there are so many questions around it. The police are supposed to answer these questions or at the very least lead the way in answering these questions. And when they don't do it, it can have a devastating impact on the family as well as the community. It can lead the community to think the police aren't protecting us because here we are getting killed and they're not uh, solving the issues. One very disturbing possibility when homicides go unsolved is retaliation, uh, retaliatory homicides and uh, violence in general. You know, I talked to Antoine Towers. He works in Oakland as a violence interrupter going around after homicides, essentially trying to support people who were involved. And one of the things he's trying to do is to try to stop retaliatory violence and stop people from wanting to do that. But he says that this can be a tough job in a town where a lot of people simply don't trust that the police are going to solve homicides because you look at the track record. Getting back to Jamal Watkins, Josh, you spent a lot of time with his family. What has his killing done to them and what has the search for his killer done to them? Well, it is really uh, uh, devastation uh, is probably even an understatement. His mother, Tina Harris, I've spoken with her quite a lot. She says it's with her every moment of every day. It has totally changed her life. She had to she had to quit her job because she was working uh, like her son as a security guard, and she was worried. You know, if something, if their emergency were to come up, what good am I going to be if I'm sitting here in a puddle of tears over over my son and his his unsolved case? Now, she has since been able to go back to work a bit, and that's that's going okay, but she's terribly affected. Every day she she talks to her son's pitcher. Uh, this was her only child. She's left with his four sons, his grandchildren. Some of them don't fully understand. They're still young children. She's trying to help them with that. Jamal Watkins' father has um, uh, tried to find distraction and work, keeping himself busy. 
And the, the fact that police have not determined who was responsible or even come up with apparently a, a good explanation of who could be responsible, it's really left the family unnerved, to say the least. You know, they're going through the grief, but it's all compounded by the questions. This is my new life now, you know. Do I want to feel this way? No, I want justice. I don't want another parent, kids, to have to feel the pain that my grandkids and I are feeling. I do pray that they could do something about this. My healing process would never start until someone is held accountable for my son's murder. Joshua Sharp and Susie Nielsen, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks, Damien. Thank you to Tina Harris. Her son, Jamal Watkins, was killed in July 2022. His murder remains unsolved. And thanks to my guests, Chronicle reporters Joshua Sharp and Susie Nielsen. You can find their story on Oakland's homicide rates at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Thank you to Francesca Fenzi and Sarah Feldberg for helping to produce this episode, to King Kaufman for editing it, and thank you for listening. <laughs>